It's Behind the Bots Time! Hey everybody, we are on break this week, but in the meantime, you can listen to this interview with NHRL founder Austin McCord that we recorded way back in May of 2021. A lot has changed with NHRL since then, but it'll give you a good idea of where things were at the time and how much things have changed ever since. We'll be back soon with an NHRL recap for the uh, June event. And in the meantime, enjoy and we'll see you soon. This week on the podcast, we have a very special guest, Norwalk Havoc founder, Austin McCord. In college, Austin founded the data backup and recovery company, Datto, growing it to 800 employees before selling the company to a private equity firm in 2017. Last year, Datto went public and is now valued at $4 billion. Today, he works as the CEO of Kasana, a company that is embedding health monitoring capabilities inside internet-connected toilet seats. Outside of work, he holds a Guinness World Record for the world's largest pair of googly eyes, which he and some friends mounted on Austin's office building in 2019. Combat Robotics fans know Austin for Norwalk Havoc, which hosts the world's most competitive Beetleweight competition out of a permanent broadcasting studio in Norwalk, Connecticut. This year, the league expanded into 30-pound full combat fighting with a brand new arena. The next competition will be held this Saturday with fights streaming live on YouTube starting at 10 a.m. Eastern. We're really looking forward to learning more about the man behind Norwalk Havoc in the hour ahead. So welcome to the show, Austin. Thanks so much for having me. I am so stoked that we are able to make this work. Um, I feel like out of, out of all of the people in the combat robotics community, you're one of the most mysterious. This has been one of the most anticipated um, interviews for us. Um, and I'm really, really interested in digging into your backstory, learning more about your motivations and some of your ambitions for, for Norwalk. Cool. Yeah. I, I kind of like uh, being most mysterious sounds, sounds appropriate. <laughs> good, 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 good. Uh, I, I'd love to learn more about that. Um, but first off, I'd love to, to hear more about your career starting chronologically. Can you take us back to college and uh, the decision to start Datto? You know, can you can you bring us back to the early 2000s, um, you know, as as a college student? Did you know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? And can you talk about what it took to get the company off the ground? Sure. Um, so uh, when, when I was in college, I sucked at college um, and, and in general, I, I sucked at school. Um, I was kind of an asshole and uh, just didn't um, didn't do any homework. Uh, so that uh, has negative impact on your grades when you're taking a zero for like 20% uh, all the time. And, um, you know, I guess RIT took a chance on me because I had very good uh, test scores. But, um, but again, like, you know, all C's, it's kind of a C student all the way through. And when I was getting close to graduating college, I was really concerned that nobody would hire me. Uh, it was the Great Recession. And... Um, I had like very poor grades and it was like, this, this is not going to go well. And so I thought like, maybe I will start a business and uh, probably fail it, like almost certainly fail at it. Um, but then I'll have that on my resume and I won't have to list my GPA. So like the real impetus behind starting data was like to hide my GPA on my resume. And I wrote out like this little business plan and a PowerPoint. And I was like, if it, if it works out really well, 
like maybe I'll get an Audi R8 um, that'll be like Iron Man's car. And that seems super cool. And that was like the upward limit of what I could imagine Datto achieving. But so that's, that's kind of how Datto got much- started. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I read also, you know, kind of the interesting part about your story is that you struggled to to raise venture capital. You know, it wasn't like a, hey, in three months, you know, I, I got my first three million dollars or anything like no, that. No, I, and I, I that, well, yeah, it was the reverse of that in that um, I, I talked to lots of venture capital firms and I was like, yeah, I want to make a NAS device that replicates data off site. And I think I can do it cheaper than anybody else. And they were like, You're, you, you don't have good pedigree. You don't have good grades. Um, you want to build hardware, but you've never done that before. And you don't have any like, you know, clearly pre-existing skill set in doing that. And then you want to get into this data backup space, which is, you know, decidedly unsexy. And we're not really clear that you could actually do it better or cheaper than everybody else. So they turned me down and I, I bootstrapped the business for the first six years. And it actually wasn't until like a big cybersecurity company came and wanted to buy my business um, that I actually got serious about raising money. And that that whole process was wild because in 2013, um, a major cybersecurity company came and they wanted to buy Datto. And at the time, I was the sole shareholder. I hadn't given anybody any options because I didn't know how. And um, yeah, they offered $100 million for the company. And I had just never even imagined a number that large. Um, and it was really wild because I like went through the whole thing and ultimately I said no, and I, I didn't sell. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of that came down to the people that work for you and just that, you know, this, uh, this big company, they did not understand why we had offices in Norwalk, Connecticut. Um, and they were like, yeah, we would probably get rid of the Norwalk office. And as far as we can tell, your management team appears to be your friends from high school. So I'm not really sure what purpose they would serve. And it, so it would have been like a horrible outcome for the people who worked at the business and a great outcome for me personally. And I just, I couldn't do it. Um, and so at that point I said no, uh, and then pretty much realized like, oh my gosh, like this business is worth a lot more than I ever thought it was. And now I need to like not screw that up. Because that's, that's like the second thing that goes through your head after you turn down $100 million is like, you better make sure that whatever outcome you get to is worth more than $100 million or so you're going to regret this moment for the rest of your life. Now, it seems like the next four to five years, you know, after that, like were a period of extreme growth, you know, for Datto uh, to go from a $10 million offer to, you know, hundreds of millions, um, you know, by 2017. Can you talk yeah. about, about that growth, you know, between 2013 and 2017? Um, I, I mean, it was interesting because I sort of did all the stuff that converted Datto from a project to a business. Um, and when I started, it was like this project and I had friends and we just kind of did stuff and made it happen. But then we went through the process of sort of maturing and bringing in, you know, high quality leaders and ultimately learning how to scale the company way beyond me. Uh, and early on, I was like the guy that wrote the programs, the customer support, the last number in the phone tree was my cell phone. Like it was all these things, but the, the challenge is that there's only 24 hours in a day. And so like you're inherently capped on like the amount of output that you can produce. And the only way that you can get past that is to learn to kind of delegate um, and basically perform the art of inception in that like whatever it is that you're thinking, you've got to get somebody else to like be as passionate about that um, as you are. 
uh, and then get them to kind of follow you uh, in that direction. And, you know, we were very lucky in that we were able to do it. We were incredibly lucky that we hired super, super great, talented people. And um, yeah, I mean, the, the growth was extreme and intense. Uh, and part of that is, is a big reason like why I quit um, towards the end of 2018, because it, it just never stops. Uh, and the business just keeps going and going and going and going. And there's always a new fire. And we had every imaginable fire that you could think of, a crazy thing happen. Um, I mean, in mid-2015, we found out that we had Hillary Clinton's emails backed up in our system. Um, like, just you think of it, it's happened, we've dealt with it, thought about it, like, it's extreme, and it, it never stops. And um, that's kind of the life of the CEO. And that's, that's what happens when you start to run these businesses at scale. Yeah. I want to, uh, to go back to the decision to build the company in Norwalk because I think it's an interesting choice. Sixth largest company, uh, sorry, sixth largest city in Connecticut. You know, I think the conventional wisdom would be, hey, move to New York or move to uh, Boston or San Francisco. You know, uh, why build a, you know, high growth unicorn startup in, uh, in Norwalk of, of all places? I, I mean, I think the answer is because of where I lived. Like, you know, there, there's not <laughs> yeah. some deep underpinning incredible logic to it. But I, what, what I would do is I would, I would flip what you said the other way. And, and the answer is that you could build an incredibly valuable, super amazing tech company anywhere. Um, middle of nowhere, Idaho, you can do it. And um, you don't have to be in the Valley. You don't have to be in New York. You don't have to be in Boston to make that happen. And um, that's, that's a big, big part of it. And frankly, for us, it, it gave us an advantage because we were, you know, uh, ultimately, while we were fishing in a relatively small pond, we were the single best place to get a job. Um, and Datto probably is still one of the absolute best places to get a job uh, in Fairfield County. And that, that gives you access to a lot of people. And um, believe it or not, Connecticut's actually not so bad of a place to work in that you have access to a lot of executives that have moved out of the city, that commute into the city. And when it came time for us to hire the, that senior team to run things like sales and marketing and finance, they were there living in those surrounding towns. Um, so it, that's you know, a big reason why we, we were able to stay in Norwalk and we didn't feel the need to move away uh, is that we could find the talent that we needed uh, in Connecticut. I want to uh, switch gears and talk a little bit more about um, kind of like your life after the the acquisition, kind of the decision to sell. Um, so, so you you sell uh, you know the company in 2017. You exit as CEO in 2018, and you know for all intents and purposes, you can kind of step back and make choices about what you want to do with the rest of your life, right? You know, um, mm -hmm. you can move anywhere in the country. You can kind of do anything that you want, um, you know, but the decision is to stay in Norwalk, to become a venture capitalist, you know, to talk to entrepreneurs, to talk to college kids who probably look very similar to you, you know, um, back, back in the day, to join this, this health company, you know, and to start a combat robotics league, you know, very interesting choices, you know, I guess, like, how did you decide what you wanted to do after leaving the company? Um. I mean, I think you, 
you do all the things that you couldn't do before and you, you put time, you know, you put your energy and effort into what you enjoy. And so um, a couple of things like re retirement is actually really boring. Um, at least for me, like I, I don't have any desire to sit on a beach. Like that's, that's fun for like, you know, an hour and a half. And frankly, after 20 minutes, I'm like pretty sunburned. So um, the beach is not for me. Um, I love to travel and I've traveled all over the world, but I, I don't want to, you know, never have a house and never have a home and just kind of live, you know, in, in a perpetual set of hotel rooms like that's that's not particularly fun. Um, you know, now uh, I, I have my house in Norwalk. I actually spend most of my time up in Boston, um, but you get very lucky that uh, travel has a lot less friction um, when you end up with like really, really crazy outcomes. And so it's easy to move around the country. Um, so uh, in that sense, like I'm, I'm super fortunate. Um, yeah, and I, I think that, you know, the, the hobbies like playing with robotics and electronics is like my passion, that's what I like to do. And um, it's actually interesting that uh, Leanne, who uh, was on Team Valkyrie, uh, she's a friend of mine and she worked for me uh, for a while at Datto. And, and she was the one that actually got me introduced to like the fact that there were three pound leagues. And I went to a, a mass destruction event and, and uh, I, I did horribly because that's what happens every time anybody builds their first robot. And like building the robot was cool, but I found that like the event was like a logistical cluster. And um, I, I looked and came away with it and was like, you know, if there's one thing I know I could fix, I could fix how these events run. Um, and I, I know how to organize systems and groups and teams and process. Uh, and so um, that's, that's kind of what put that, that spark in my mind. Uh, and that was probably, you know, 2016, 2017, I kind of played around with like going to different competitions. And so one of the things that I wanted to do after leaving Datto, or actually, no, I, I had the first event while I was still at Datto, um, was just I, I wanted to run a better event um, and make that happen. And so that's what I, I got started doing. And, and I kind of had this philosophy that I, I want to be humble about it and I want to, you know, learn by doing. And so it's like, well, we'll get the stuff and we'll have an event. And first step was like, if you build it, will they come? Um, and we were able to get a few people to come. And I think we was like 18 or 20 robots came and competed at the first event. And it was like, okay, that was fun. Like, how do we take that to the next level? Um, and after each event, that's kind of the thing of how do we go to the next step? How do we go to the next step? Um, and just constantly trying to kind of push that and continue to get better. And, you know, it's sort of what I did at work. Um, and it's kind of the same thing that I, I do now and in my hobby. And it's always fun to think about like where you can take it. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd, I'd love to learn a little bit more about Katana and, and the venture capital firm. Um, you know, uh, maybe maybe start with the venture capital firm. Sure. Um, um, so you know, the, the... I, immediately following um, leaving Datto, I, I took a job at a venture capital firm called General Catalyst. And they're a really known firm based in Boston and the West Coast. Um, they're fantastic. Uh, they invested in Datto. I, I actually really, really like the people there. Um, and I went out and it was amazing. I got to see all these cool companies, meet all these crazy entrepreneurs, people working on all kinds of stuff. And 
then I found that like the, the challenge a little bit with venture capital is that when you meet this incredible, amazing founder and they're working on something really cool, you get like a two hour meeting with them. And then they're like, okay, thanks for coming. Bye. Bye. Get the hell out of here. All we really want is your money. Um, and so it's, it's kind of like Groundhog Day. It just repeats itself again and again and again. And you don't actually build anything. You, you're sort of more like a radio DJ curating a playlist rather than like an, an artist that gets to, you know, make an album uh, and see where that goes. And so um, it, it really wasn't enough. Uh, so I, I left um, and I decided that what I was going to do is start my own VC firm and kind of focus a little bit on like the founders and the parts of the VC firm that I really, really enjoyed. And then also work like a regular job building something. And before the pandemic, I was supposed to go run a cybersecurity company in France and actually had all that sorted out, ready to go, documents signed, everything happened. Like I made a huge investment in the company, like got all this money ready and then got a call in March from Air France. And they're like, yeah, we don't fly to France anymore. Um, and I was like, okay, well, that's gonna be pretty hard to run a company that I can't go to. Um, so bailed, got to find out what force majeure looks like and uh, got all my money back. Uh, that was wild. And then was sort of looking for, you know, what, what is the next thing that would be interesting and knew some people up in Boston uh, who are super connected in the healthcare space and actually knew somebody uh, who went to RIT who had this idea around, you know, putting all these sensors to be able to basically get your blood pressure uh, from just sitting on a toilet seat. And when I started to talk to the healthcare executives that I knew, they felt like this could be incredibly impactful. And when I spent more time with Nick, I realized that, you know, he's this genius, incredible scientist person. But then when it comes to the business side of putting all the pieces together, you know, he's going to make a lot of mistakes along the way. And I've, I've actually already made a lot of those mistakes. And so together, um, I could run this and deliver on his vision and we could do something that's really big and impactful and good for the world. And so in August of last year, closed a $14 million investment into Kasana, um, put a whole bunch of my money in there as part of that and came on as CEO. And our, our corporate headquarters is up in uh, Boston, which is where I spend most of my time. And then um, we also have offices up in Rochester uh, as well. Very cool. Yeah. Um, before we get into a combat robotics, like really dive into it, um, I'd love to kind of take a look at your quirky sense of humor. Um, so like uh, you've got this Guinness world record. How did that happen? Where, where, where of, of all of the world records that, that I guess you could, you could attempt, why googly eyes? I'm just so curious about the logistics that went into this, you know, can you unpack that story for us? Sure. I, I mean, it, Frankly, the previous record was kind of pitiful at like three feet. And, and <laughs> it had come up that like, there was like, hey, you know, we were joking around and like googly eyes makes their way through the internet every once in a while. And there's pictures of googly eyes stuck to stuff. And it was like, oh, what's the world's largest googly eye? And you come back and it's like three feet, really? Three feet? And so it just felt eminently achievable. Um, and so we set out to build 12 foot googly eyes and we hung them on the side of a building and filed all the stuff. And it's actually kind of annoying. Like if you don't want to pay a zillion dollars to have like a Guinness officiator come out, the process to get your Guinness world record takes like four or five months. 
Um, so it's, it's a little annoying there of like all this paperwork, but, um, but we did it, we built them, we made it happen. Um, and it was just, it was like a thing to do. Um, I, I'll be honest, like we've got other world records that we want to play with at 50 day, like between me and the other folks that work there. Uh, like the, the world's fastest RC car is only 220 miles an hour. Um, oh, wow. and, and that, that just feels eminently like a breakable world record. And when you read up on how that was done, there's all this energy and focus on like aerodynamics and all these pieces. And it's like our belief, like we have incredibly powerful brushless motors. Like we should just be able to build something that's just going to brute force its way past this record. Um, and so like, those are kind of the things that we think about and are just like, let's, let's do it. Let's make it happen. Um, but I, I love all sorts of weird quirky stuff. Um, at Datto, I filled somebody's cube with ball pit balls. When I worked at the other venture capital firm, I filled someone's office with ball pit balls and then managed to like, they were like, that's great, but you got to take these back. So now I have a ball pit that's like four and a half feet deep and huge. Um, and you learn that you drown when you try to swim in ball pits, which is kind of funny. Like you literally can't achieve buoyancy. Um, but just quirky, weird things are really fun. Um, you know, what, um, (laughs) what is the purpose of 50 day street? I mean, like giant googly eyes, combat robotics, um, world's fastest RC car. (laughs) Like, can you like, what, what, what is happening there? You know, like, what is the goal there? I I mean, it's like, it's where the supervillain has their lab. Like (laughs) imagine if you were 12 and you were super nerdy and you won the lottery that's what you would get. Yeah. And, and so like, it's, it's all of those pieces together. Um, and, and like a lot of it is that I I actually, I love playing with technology, seeing where it's going, what's happening with it. And I find that, you know, I, um, I have a lot of resources, but I don't have a lot of time. So rather than, you know, you get there and you realize, oh man, I really need a Hall effect sensor. I really need this and that. It's like, well, I'll just buy everything from Adafruit and put it in a drawer and I'll buy half of Alibaba and put that in a drawer. And so you just have all of this stuff so that at any point in time, whether you want to build a scooter or an iPad, like you have everything available and you can just make all kinds of crazy stuff all the time. That's really cool. Um, one last question before I, I send you over to Kyle. I want to ask you about Color Splash. Um, so this is the most viewed video on the Norwalk Havoc YouTube channel. And mm-hmm. the first time I saw it, I, I genuinely laughed out loud, which I feel is um, difficult on the internet. Um, <laughs> so like, can you talk to us about Color Splash? I know that I'm, I'm going back two years, you know, but like, uh, what, what is this product? How did you get this idea? And, and why did you film it? Um, so it is an April Fool's joke, um, and it's it's actually the video that was part of a fake startup pitch, and um, April Fool's, uh, I guess that would be 2018, or no, 2019, um, April 1st, 2019 fell on a Monday, and the VC firm that I worked at, they have their big partner meeting on a Monday, and so I had a friend of mine come in who does improv and he delivered this pitch that was a PowerPoint deck about revolutionizing interior painting. And the pitch ended with a demo of the robot. <laughs> um, and that was that robot. And so we, we built it 
And it's, it's actually kind of funny because it's, it's harder than you think to build a robot that purposefully sucks. Um, and you have to like <laughs> actively put work into making sure that it is really shitty. Um, but yeah, then we, we just, that video was filmed in a single take. Um, Saslow filmed it. I drove the robot and that was, that was it. Uh, it was like a one day project, believe it or not. And then kind of after we did the April Fool's thing and it, it really was hilarious, the VC firm, um, I put it on YouTube on Reddit and it went to the top of the videos list on Reddit. And then a company called Viral Hog asked to license it and they pay me a recurring royalty um, off that video. Uh, it used to make a lot more, but it, it makes a couple hundred dollars a month, believe it or not. Wow, that's pretty awesome. That's really awesome. Um, all right, on over to you, Kyle. All right, so let's get into your combat robotics career. Um, let's start into your brief venture into heavyweight combat robotics, uh, something that was a big story in the combat robot community last year. Who's going to buy Sharko? Who's the mystery man that's buying Sharko? Um, Ed Robinson built a 250-pound combat robot called Sharko. He unfortunately had to sell it. Um, so you ended up being that mystery buyer. You, uh, you went to BattleBots, you, you got the thing and you transported it cross country to Norwalk. Can you tell us about kind of that experience and what, what inspired you to purchase uh, a, a famous art bot like Charco? Um, I, I think uh, we looked at it that we were sort of curious about kind of the BattleBots and like it felt like maybe we want to own one and it'd be fun to, you know, make it more aggressive or do something with it. And, and Sharko was actually one of the more affordable robots. Um, and we've kind of toyed around back and forth as to like whether or not we would go compete on the TV show. Uh, and so our, our thought is that like this was a good way to make inroads with the folks of the TV show. Because um, I don't actually know a lot of people in the combat robot community. Um, I don't hang out with people in the combat robot community. It's just sort of, this is what makes me the mysterious person is I'm like not connected um, to any of that stuff. Uh, and so we felt like this was a way to kind of build some of those connections because it's very clear that a lot of the TV show is, is a, it's a who you know game as much as what you know. Um, and so that, that was our thinking. Interesting. And we knew um, we were going to build a 30 pound arena and so our thought was maybe we could use Sharko as the house robot. Yeah, the Sharko ended up being a little bit large for that particular task, from what I understand. Yeah, um, <laughs> and Sharko's pretty beat up, um, and uh, probably uses a like it's it's all brushed motors, and we would go a different route if we were going to build it. Gotcha. But yeah, we might we might take the same shape and form of Sharko someday and bring it back and. You know, that's that's kind of the thing is we feel like if we're going to go to BattleBots, like we have to win. Um, yep. And it's it's kind of the same thing, like, you know, why why do the Mythbusters not go to BattleBots? And if you ask them, they're like, yeah, well, we would have to win if we go. So, you know, it, it takes a lot of time and effort to build a robot that's going to actually win. Um, and uh, we're just not there yet. Your influence is definitely being felt um, at BattleBots, especially this last year with Pain Train, which is yep. basically like a Norwalk Havoc grown team, a Norwalk Havoc grown bot. Um, and you sponsored Pain Train in part this year, from what I understand. Is that right? 
Uh, we sponsored Pain Train for the most recent season. That's and right. we're a little nervous. So far, we've not sponsored any robots for the next season. Um, frankly, uh, somewhat concerned about like, how do we make sure that we do that in an even-handed way? Yeah. Um, and I don't want to favor, you know, one competitor over another. Um, and so we, we haven't really decided what we're going to do there just yet. That makes sense because this year there's there is more kind of Norwalk Havoc inspired teams. There, that there are, are a bunch, yeah. Us. Um, most notably, the one that we had recently on the podcast was Kalk, uh, which we're really excited about. Um, are there any other teams that are going to go to BattleBots this year from kind of the Norwalk scene that you're excited to see? Um, yes, but I like I don't want to out them if they haven't outed themselves yet, and I don't follow who said they're going and not. So but we don't know who's like uh, not everybody's talked about who's going, but we all know pretty much who's applied. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so we, we know who's who's thinking about going. A few teams have yeah. mentioned that they uh, I mean, they are not going, but we, we yeah, don't really know I, that. I am uh, like the cock from the last event. Uh, mm -hmm. And the demonstration that a bunch of small robots can take down a big robot, I think, is really fascinating because it was one of those adages that everybody's like, no, kinetic energy scales exponentially based on mass and like little robots will never be able to take on like a big robot and you'll just always get destroyed. And yeah. basically they, they prove that wrong uh, and demolish the whole field. <laughs> so... Um, that, that opens the door to something new. And yeah. for me, like that's the most exciting thing to see in any of these combat robot things is when somebody comes up with a new design and you look at it that, you know, Droopy came out of nowhere and then just boom, like won the whole event. Um, <laughs> and that, that kind of stuff is just so cool. Uh, and it's, it's what makes me feel good because I feel like a common refrain that everybody's like, oh, it's all beater bars. Um, and <laughs> like, that means great. If you build a robot that can beat beater bars, you're going to easily just crush them all at Norwalk. Um, and so seeing people continue to innovate and, and try to change up, you know, what they can do, what can happen with the rules is, is really neat. Um, and definitely with the 12 pound and 30 pound classes, which are new to us this year, so many of those robots are never before seen, like people built them specifically for our weight classes, yep. which is really, really cool to see. Cause we're just getting all new robot designs and thinking and ideas coming to the field. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So we already talked about kind of what your impetus for Norwalk was. You, you saw how other events were run and you knew you could do better. Um, so what did it take to kind of get the league off the ground? What was it like getting ready for that first event? Um, I, I mean, mainly the biggest worry was would people show up? Yeah. And so that was like, would they show up? And we knew we could provide them a table. We knew we could provide an arena and then had an idea around what we would do with cameras and, kind of started there and I bought like a four channel black magic basic video mixer and started with that and you know just kind of kept stepping it up and I think the the goal is really to make a stream that's really watchable um that has attention uh that like people can sit down and spend you know a couple hours watching it and sort of the same way that like Twitch followers like you can get a ton of Twitch followers and people watch video games for hours 
Uh, so it'd be really cool to be able to do that with robots and expand the sport overall. Um, so we've always kind of le leaned on what could we do? How can we set up the rules in ways that are going to make watching the event interesting and fun? Um, and that, that tends to be the direction that we lean in really hard. Um, and you'll sort of continue to see that with Norwalk now and in the future. And now we're getting to the point where we've had interest you know, from streaming services that are like, hey, can you package up a three hour block of this um, and let us watch it internally and see if, you know, that might be something we would run. Um, and we're, we're really getting to that kind of scale. And that's really exciting because, uh, yeah, then we, we could build something huge that, that gets a much bigger following than just people who care about robots on Facebook and Reddit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so, as you said, Norwalk has kind of grown exponentially since you started. Uh, the streaming is, I mean, very watchable. My five-year-old and six-year-old both will sit there for two or three hours when I'm running the show. And not just because their dad's on it. They know all the robots. You know what I mean? Like they have strong feelings about Droopy. They have strong feelings about the kind of, kind of the format of the show. Um, so at this point, you know, we, we kind of see where you want to go with Norwalk. You want to make it a big streaming event. You want to make it something that people can sit and watch for hours. Um, how much do you think you've invested into Norwalk? Both like time, money, like how much of a full-time job is this for you right now? Um, What's well, like four people's full-time job? <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it, I mean, I, I put work into it, but Ryan works at 50 day, you know, every day, uh, Ed and Eamon work at 50 day all the time. And then we hired henchmen, um, that I, I put out a job ad that was like local supervillain seeks henchmen. And I got two people who had never been to 50 day street ever before, never been to Norwalk before moved from different places in the country to come work on, uh, on this stuff and work on crazy projects. And it's like, do you want to build, really weird random stuff and you want to help run this robot event and make it bigger. And uh, so that's, that's where Josh and Jim come in uh, as part of the team. But yeah, it's, it's a team of people uh, who've been working on this, you know, full time for a while. Like they, they come in and it's 40 hours a week. Like it is a lot of work uh, to make all of this happen and especially to do it at the scale uh, and to the production quality and efficiency that, that we do it by. Yeah, and it gets better every single event. I really have to commend your team on that. I mean, you see noticeable leaps in both efficiency and quality of the production every single event. It's really good. That's, um, that's the goal. You know, we're going to keep going. And I, I think a lot of it's this like learn by doing. Um, and we've never operated any of this gear. And now we've got, you know, more gear than an NBA game as far as like actual video production stuff. And we're, getting better and better and better at automating all of it to make it run very efficiently um, so that we can just move quickly, keep staff down um, so that we don't need like a thousand people to do stuff. Um, and it's, it's really coming together and the production quality just gets better every cycle. And hopefully the experience for the competitors gets better every cycle as well. And like, I was super proud that the last event finished at a normal time. And yeah. like, that's, the first time I think anybody's ever had a robot event that finished at a normal time. And, you know, we fought 70 robots that day in a yeah. double elimination tournament across three weight classes. 
Absolutely. Um, so this coming Norwalk, and we could have said this for, you know, the last several Norwalks, this is going to be the biggest event you've had. Yep. You've got uh, over hundred robots, over hundred robots, over 80 beetle weights, builders flying in from California, um, big roster of 12 pound and 30 pound bots. So what are you most excited about coming into this event? What do you think the, the breakout is going to be of what you know who's coming, what you know is, is like new to the production? What are you most looking forward to? So I love the fact that a third of the robots have never competed before and that you have no idea what they are. And you see people talking on Discord, trying to figure out what they are. No one knows. Um, and that you have all these new robots that are showing up. And so that, that has me crazy excited. And then I think the other thing is that um, this event will actually be open to spectators. Uh, and we're able to do that based on where COVID is right now. And uh, that's, that's really exciting because that brings so much more energy to the event. Um, and we're, we're looking forward to having those people there, having food trucks outside uh, and making the day hopefully a lot more fun for everybody. But it, it will feel really different when you've got a crowd there that's yelling and cheering based on what's going on um, in the boxes. What, uh, what capacity are you allowed to open to in the, in the new restrictions? Um, so all the restrictions uh, come up Wednesday of, or sorry, the, the 19th. Um, but like Norwalk is like, look, if you're a little early, like if you have an event on the 15th or whatever, we don't really care. Um, and I don't, I don't know the exact number the fire marshal has said. Um, we want to make sure that people have plenty of room to stand apart. Certainly all the spectators are going to have to wear masks, like some of the you know, basic stuff. But luckily, Connecticut has one of the highest vaccination rates in the country. And so we, we feel pretty good about being able to have people in. And then we've been playing around with the ventilation in the building and we know we can move an enormous amount of air that like air does not spend more than five or six minutes in the building before it's blown out the other side. And a lot of that's due to the negative pressure systems we put in the cage, but like we, we, we actually feel really good that we can do this safely. Um, and we think it'll just be exciting to have those people in the stands. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's going to be really nice to get that energy, get that that movement in there. Yeah. How do you think that uh, having an audience is going to change overall production for you? I mean, really, you've had so much backstage, you know what I mean? So much backstage space to uh, keep your staff, keep uh, keep the builders. Is that going to have to shrink a little bit? Like, what are you thinking as far no, as... No, the... I, I mean, you guys right now announced to empty bleachers. Yes, like... we do. We've got plenty of space. And so, you know, that was one of the things we bought that building with the idea that we wanted to do robots there. And it's 67,000 square feet. Um, and we're, we're using less than half of it. Um, well, less than half of it. And so there's a lot of room to expand. And it's wild. We're probably the largest permanent robot combat installation anywhere. Um, yes. <laughs> and it's, it's exciting to know that we can continue to grow <laughs> with that. And we've got space to accommodate more competitors uh, as well as space to accommodate and make things, you know, great for, um, for spectators and, you know, things that we want to make happen uh, like the ability for robot teams to sell merch, to set up tables so that they can hopefully make some money off the event to fund their robot stuff. Like that's something that I think will make a big difference down the road. Um, and really 
create good ways for the spectators to interact with the competitors um, and help bring them in. And a lot of those spectators, we look at them as, you know, potential future competitors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is my last question and I'm going to pass you off to Chris, but uh, I want to know where do you see Norwalk Havoc going in the next, like in the immediate future, what's the next big plan for Norwalk? I mean, I know you kind of went from this, you know, single cage, not much streaming production value to what it is now, multi-cage, multi-event uh, thing. What What's next? What's coming up? So I think that as the 12 and 30 pound weight classes mature, um, we may add an additional cage for 12 and 30 and become better at actually getting the ability to fight multiple fights simultaneously and air just the top card fights, like the most interesting ones, uh, which will allow us to have a lot more robots come fight. Um, yeah. And right now, the number of robots that wants to fight like actually exceeds that of what we can handle. And this was sort of the first time that we had to create a wait list and tell people, hey, you know, there might not be space for you. Um, and that, that was tough. And we want to be open to everybody. And so uh, figuring out, you know, how we can do that and continue to expand so that while we might do 110 robots this event, I'd love to be able to do 200 robots at some point. And how do I make that work and work in a way that's efficient, that's not stressful, um, and still produces a really good stream? All right. All right. I'm going to pass you over to Chris. All right, Aston. I'm going to move into some questions from the fans. And Go we're going to start it. with Big Dill team member, Brandon Bennett Young, who competes at Norwalk Havoc with the 12 pounder Demi Gorgon. And he writes, First, I'm very grateful for Austin giving the combat robotics community such uh, so much in the last few years. I think the NERC guys are glad to see someone pick up the slack as Moto and Franklin have been sidelined. My first question, how did you get into combat robotics? Did you fight any robots before Norwalk Havoc started up? I did. Um, I, uh, I made some crappy three pounders and some crappy 12 pound sportsman robots. Um, and then basically was frustrated with how the events were run. And so I decided I would build my own event um, and then, you know, go from there. Brandon goes on to ask, what do you think makes Norwalk Havoc different compared to other events? I mean, we try to certainly keep the event as friendly as possible. We want the event to be very builder friendly. Um, we also want to run the event very efficiently. And I think that that pressure for time to keep moving probably separates Norwalk from a lot of the other events. Uh, and then I think that the other thing is that our rules are different. We're a lot more open to crazy designs. Like we accept fire. Uh, we're probably less, concerned about things like legal liabilities and safety waivers associated with like renting space from people. And we're, we're very fortunate to own our space, uh, which gives us a lot more control over what we do uh, and how we run the event. His third question is, how do you think Norwalk Havoc has affected the sport of combat robotics? My hope is that it's grown the sport. Uh, and I think that that's definitely the case that you see people who have never fought before show up all the time and it shows new ideas, new designs. And by having an event that occurs regularly, um, 
it really incentivizes people to experiment more. Because if you have an event only once a year, you feel like you've got to build your best, you know, mm -hmm. most reliable robot. But if you've got an event every two months, you have a lot of room and a lot of capability to try new things, try different stuff. And I really like our season format, which is a huge thanks to Jameson Go actually originally had that idea that we converted into an annual season where we have our, our six events and then our finals. Um, and our finals are really fun because we get to fight the absolute best of the best robots. Um, and that's, that's really cool. And so I think that that format is pretty unique to Norwalk, uh, largely due to the fact that we have a lot of events. Um, and we may see more places start to adopt that, hopefully. Um, but the biggest thing is I do think that Norwalk has brought more people to the sport. Absolutely. Brandon's last question is, what's your favorite innovation that you've added to the competition? Hmm. Um, I think the instant replay stuff, like I really like to be able to do that. And the fact that we can switch cameras in the replay. Um, I know Encore is pretty controversial, but that can be pretty fun to some of those fights down at the end. All right. I have a four-part question from Kokodo, Maine. Uh, the first question. It would seem that with the way the arena is designed, it's incredibly difficult for anything that doesn't have a damaging weapon to win. Have you considered changing up the arena layout in order to encourage weapon diversity? Um, we have considered like whether or not to add pits or potentially like arena hazards. Um, we haven't done that now. And I think there is a good amount of weapon diversity and I think that people are starting to learn that they can build kinetic weapons that look pretty different. Flippers have actually done pretty well. Um, there's still a whole lot that can be done with fire uh, that I think will be interesting. And I think it's too soon to go and say, hey, like everybody's always doing the same thing. And, you know, there, there is no weapon diversity. Mm -hmm. I, I also think that high energy weapons produce a better stream because people want to see robots go flying all over the place. Um, and if it's just a shoving match, it doesn't, it doesn't elicit the same sort of emotional, like, wow, that was really cool reaction. You've recently made the jump from 12 and 30 pounders, assuming you can acquire the resources to do so. Do you plan to ever build a heavyweight arena for the 250 pound bots to fight in sportsman and or full combat? So if we do it, it would definitely be full combat. I think that for us, we want to make sure that we have the experience necessary in order to do it safely. And we started with the three pound arenas and we felt like we could do that well. And then we got a lot of advice and we built a 30 pound arena that we think is really, really good. And I, I want to make sure that we really know that and know the weaknesses and strengths associated with that arena before we would take on the challenge of building a 250 pound arena. I think the other balanced question there at the 250 pound league is how accessible are those robots? Um, and that those robots tend to cost like 25,000 and up. And um, just figuring out what the willingness is for people to fight those uh, on a regular basis. And are there enough people who wanna fight them on a regular basis? And I think that at this stage, we're really looking to see how the 30 pound league shakes up most of the 30 pound robots are new. Uh, they don't, they have never existed before and they were built because we started to run a regular 30 pound league. And if that 30 pound league starts to fill up the way the three pound league does, then maybe we would consider opening a higher weight class. 
but I don't, I, I don't think that's going to happen like right away. It's, it might take a few years before we get there. And now I believe you touched on uh, the third question Kokoto has. That's speaking of heavyweights, have you ever considered competing on BattleBots? Yeah, we absolutely would go compete, but when we go, we will win. <laughs> you heard it here uh, first, folks. Yeah. La um, last but, but not you least. Know, our house robots are they're getting better and better and we've got some surprisingly capable things you know we haven't spent a lot of time talking about brett um but uh brett is a force to be reckoned with and and fluffy the 300 pound cousin of brett is uh is extremely dangerous <laughs> uh well you could just bring him right to BattleBots. fluffy's ready to go yeah uh, so last but not least, out of uh, every other bot you've seen compete at one of your competitions, what are some of your favorites? Um, I, I like Billy. Uh, I, I think that uh, that's a it's just a fun robot. And I, I love that he's quiet and sort of has this simple but pretty nasty design. Um, Star Child um, is a good robot that I, I love to see compete. Uh, certainly... Like you, you can't second guess. Like it, JMO, I think builds the world's most reliable robots. And like Silent Spring, I feel like you could attack with a sledgehammer, and it's still just going to keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. Um, and so that's that's impressive. Uh, like there's there's so many favorites. Just Smee taking the dimensional challenges associated with the rules and going after that is is kind of cool. Um, and watching Joe drive that uh is is really amazing and just he's got so much skill there um that, that's awesome i i definitely liked droopy a lot and i would love to see kind of what a next generation droopy could do because that was sort of a first test of a concept uh and i think that people could go down that road and build some robots to win and um what cock has shown that you can have multiple little robots destroy larger ones that's really exciting because I think we're just going to see a ton more of that. And I know that when we set up the rules, we specifically set them up so that you could show up with a bunch of the little robots that might be competitive in a lower class and use them to fight in a higher class. And so I'm, I'm very curious to see how that plays out. That's a perfect segue into a question I have from Logan Jones, who asks, who would win the fight? All the three pounders together or Fluffy? Um, I, uh, all the three pounders would without a doubt immobilize Fluffy. <laughs> like if, if nothing else, Fluffy would run them over, turn them into dust, and then the dust would immobilize Fluffy. Or but just Fluffy doesn't have the ground clearance to handle all the three pounders. With the, with the sheer number of uh, applicants for, for the three pound class, it would probably be more like a ball pit that Fluffy would be in. Yeah, um, but I, I, I think the three pounders could do, a, you know, a really good job making Fluffy unable to show motion. Logan also asks, if a new brick house bot needed to get made, what would it be named? Hmm. Well, so we had Bart, Bert, like I, I think we're feeling these like the B names. Fluffy's kind of an outlier, I think, because it, it was going to look different. Um, we thought about covering it with shag carpeting or something. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll stick with B names. All right. Speaking of B names, we have a question here from Brian Brown. Uh, and, and he asks, as a parent who has drank the Kool-Aid of combat robotics due to my kid's interest, 
you're gearing up to start organizing events in our area. What are the top three things you would share with a new event organizer? Also, what do you wish you knew when you first started organizing Norwalk Havoc? Hmm. So I think the, the big things that I would share with event organizers are um, know your, your bracket and set times for how long people need to repair uh, and then hold that pretty firm because uh, roboteers will use as much time as possible and they'll just continue to use more time as long as you give it to them. And so being firm about staying on schedule is, is pretty important. And, uh, you know, make sure that you have a lot of tools to clean out your cage and replace stuff in the cage and move through that pretty quickly. Uh, those, are, those are probably like the biggest first time things. And if you're not going for a stream, if you're just trying to do it locally, then, um, then you don't have to worry about a lot of the video headaches that we've had and dealt with and thought about over time. But um, yeah, those are probably the big pieces. And then make sure that there's time for people to show up, set up and get past safety before starting. And your, the second question was what? Uh, I think I think you basically uh, touched touched on all of that. Um, yeah. But uh, as someone who has attended Norwalk a, a few times in 2019, I'll also say that you guys have the best snacks. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> when you're an event organizer, it's important to have good snacks. Yeah. Um, so Bloodsport team member Seth Schaefer, who competes at Norwalk Havoc with the Beetleweight division, has two questions. So first, would you ever consider having a minor league or a rookie league tournament or bracket, given how almost every professional sport operates with multiple tiers between rookie and professional? Absolutely. Um, we, we would love to have a rookie league. Um, um, that's on our list of things to think about for 2022 and how we would do that. I think the, the biggest challenge for us is that we're probably maxed out on the number of Saturdays we're willing to take from our lives to run this event. Uh, so we have seven Saturdays out of 52 weeks and that's like, I, I can't give any more weekends. Um, so figuring out how we do a rookie event, either if there's another team that wants to come use our infrastructure, that's fine. Or if we work out a way for other regionalized events to use our rules, um, or perhaps like a rookie version of our rules that might be easier for them to build cages for. Uh, th those are ways that we could do it, potentially open sourcing our cage design so that like the rookie levels could happen outside of Norwalk and then people work their way up uh, into Norwalk Havoc. Uh, it's definitely a route, um, but I, I always want there to be space for first timers. And so we've also thought about, you know, setting aside 25% of the bracket for first timers or something to that effect. Uh, but I, I do agree that for the vast majority of first-time competitors at Norwalk, it is a humbling experience. That's uh, that's really interesting, and I'm uh, interested to see you know where that idea goes in the future. Um, Seth's second question is: What is the motivation behind some of Norwalk Havoc's very unique rules, such as the multi-bot -weight, multi weight bonus or turning off Brett? Um, so just to encourage unique robots. Uh, we definitely want to encourage multi-bots, like they're always more fun. Um, and uh, then try to make a more interesting stream. 
Uh, so how can we make this more fun for viewers to watch? And that's that's a big part of like the rules that we have set up is to make this fun for streaming, fun for TV. Definitely. All right. So pain train captain Evan Arias, who competes at Norwalk Havoc with the Beetleweight Shredded Bro writes, first, thank you for sponsoring pain train for season five. Norwalk Havoc is home to team Shredded. We have a related note from pain train team member, Anthony D'Ambrosio, who competes at Norwalk Havoc with his Beetleweight Blackbird. And uh, he, he has a question or he says, uh, hey, Austin, thanks for everything you do for grassroots robotic combat and the growth of our sport. Who is your favorite 2020 BattleBots rookie and why was it Pain Train? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, th this is going to sound horrible, but I, I don't actually watch BattleBots. Whoa. I know. Like it. It's like this weird, like I come and I run this event and I do this thing and then I spend zero minutes a day thinking or talking about robots. Um, and, and part of it's that like the friends in the rest of my life don't know anything about robots. They don't come to robot events. Like I, I just, I, I have like a weird set of very different diverse friends. And, um, and so it's, it's sort of this like thing that I do that I don't spend a whole lot of time talking to other people about other than it's like, oh, I, I go and I do that for a little while and then come back. Um, and so yeah, unfortunately I'm, I'm not super ingrained in like the community and, and I would probably actually struggle to name, you know, more than like the top 10 or 20 robots that come and compete at Norwalk because so much of the focus is around just building this high quality event. I mean, that makes sense. You got, you got enough on your plate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, so finally, uh, we always end every, every episode with a series of deeply philosophical questions from uh, Norwalk Havoc superfan, Mary Catherine Carr. Um, and so she has a, a couple of uh, questions here. First is, why did you choose combat robotics over becoming Batman? Well, if I was Batman, you wouldn't know. Ooh. Right. So like, you're, I'm not sure that they're actually exclusive. Wow. All right. So, you know, next time you see Batman on the news, you never know. It could be you. Um, <laughs> so her next question is, when can I buy a robot to paint my room? Um, we, we can certainly loan you a robot to paint your room. We have one. <laughs> Quality not guaranteed. Yeah. Um, uh, when can I buy Brett slash Bert slash Fluffy merch? Hopefully Saturday. Ooh, all right. I, I know in the uh, YouTube stream uh, last time, there were a lot of people clamoring for merch. So that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. Um, yeah. How did it feel to destroy those little bots with giant bricks last Norwalk? It's fun. <laughs> like... You, it, we, we need to do a, like the things that we do at Norwalk in between Norwalks. Um, like they would have definitely challenged uh, our brick robots to all sorts of crazy fights. I remember- Inanimate objects and robotic objects. I, I remember there was one a while back where you um, uh, were destroying like old like computers or old office equipment, if I recall. Mm -hmm. That was fun. Yeah, we, we, we have a large supply of old office equipment. We actually just ordered off eBay. It's pretty cheap. And um, it's there in case we need to destroy something. Um, our uh, 
April Fools this year, we we created a website called backintheoffice.net. And um, it has a bunch of Zoom backgrounds where people absolutely lose their mind on um, office equipment. Like it starts out normal and then it looks like the coworker behind you just like their computer caught on fire or they got pissed and they threw it through a window. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, all right, so uh, the next question, I promise nobody uh, paid her to ask this. She says, can I start a petition to feed the announcers every event and give them standard bathroom breaks? <laughs> yes, and we should be able to do that this event. Um, Woohoo! Um, uh, so where did you find all of those TVs and how did you manage to sync them up so well? This is a, a major question that we've all had, so I'm looking forward to hearing this answer. Um, so the, the TVs we got off eBay and then fixed them. And then the, the sync part, they actually, that actually comes for free um, because the, the TVs are all analog. So unlike your LCD, which has a frame buffer and all sorts of stuff going on and Samsung wants to like do whatever they do to the picture, um, analog TVs have to display what is sent to them immediately because they have no memory. Um, you're literally sending instructions for what to do with the electron gun. And you're saying, point the gun there and you know hit these intensities and hit those spots on the shadow mask. So the perfect synchronization you get for free. And it is really weird because you're not used to seeing it because you're used to seeing like LCD TVs that have independent processing for the video as it comes off HDMI. Uh, and, um, and so it does cause them to stand out. But yeah, we're big fans of the retro wall and it kind of fits our like synth wave aesthetic that we're going for. Yeah, it's it's so visually striking and, and so cool. Um, yeah. All right, and so the last question we have is for Mary and, and for the show is, what do you think the future of combat robotics is and how can Norwalk Havoc and BattleBots help to facilitate your vision? And what about us fans? So, I mean, I, I think the future is that there it's a much bigger sport. Um, and it's as well known as first, as far as what's out there. And right now people know about the TV show, but at the 250 pound level, it's not approachable. And the TV show doesn't do anything to make combat robots approachable. And our goal is to start and always have both approachable weight classes and then you can work your way up with kinetic energy. And that's what's kind of cool is just that somebody can build a competitive robot for a few hundred dollars, like for a price point that's far more achievable than the cost of the TV show robots that you see, which are on par with that of a you know, decent used car. Um, that's much harder to do. Uh, and not easy because the, the people who get excited about this stuff are middle school and high school students. And the idea that they can work with their parents or work with like a group in town or start a high school club and come compete, like that's, that's awesome that it, it can be that approachable. Amazing. Austin, thank you so much. Your story is fascinating and we absolutely love what you are doing over there with Norwalk Havoc. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we look forward to seeing you there this Saturday. Sounds good. I'll see everybody there on Saturday. All right. After the break, we'll return with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. Welcome back from the break. Time for Robots Around the World. 
This week, we're traveling to the happiest place on Earth, where Imagineers at Disney are hard at work on a new miniature robotic actor that will be unleashed on the public inside the company's theme parks. Project Kiwi is a bipedal animatronic robot that stands at two and a half feet tall and can walk around the park by itself, interacting with kids and their parents. Disney says the robot's first application will be Baby Groot. Okay, that's that's pretty cute. I think we all, you know, everybody is a fan of Baby Groot out there. Um, it's, I don't know. That's weird. It's weird. It's a little weird. Wait a minute. I'm Groot. <laughs> Chris, we are Groot. Oh. Hmm. Um, so isn't this like, as soon as I read this article, I was like, this is what Pete Abramson was talking about on our podcast that he couldn't talk about on our podcast. Do you guys remember that? No. He was like talking about the future of BattleBots and how it was going to be bipedal and that people within the robot combat community were working on something for Disney that he wasn't allowed to talk about. Whoa. So we're working on this. So like there's, there are, I think people within the community, I mean, obviously there's a huge robot community contingent down in Florida and this is where this technology was largely developed. So I think that this is what he was talking about. And if that's the case, does that mean this could be the beginning of perhaps a future division of combat robotics? Mm, yeah, give Baby Groot like a little miniature chainsaw and let it uh, put, put it right <laughs> into the battle box. <laughs> it would be interesting to know how much this robot weighs because, you know, maybe you, you could just slap a chainsaw on it. Who knows? I mean, I bet that it's more than, well, actually, Baby Groot's pretty tiny. It's pretty small. Um. So I'm not sure about how much this particular weighs, but it would have to be its own its own class. You know what I mean? You couldn't put like a, a, a bipedal robot in there with tanks. That's not a thing. It would just get run over. <laughs> oh, I want to see. It says, according to the project, it's a two and a half foot tall bot. Um, I think that the reason why that they that they made it two and a half feet tall is so overambitious moms at Disney, don't pick up this robot and put it into an oversized handbag to bring home and, <laughs> and entertain all the children. I really hope it does weigh like 200 pounds, though. So when those moms try, <laughs> they, they're like, oh. <laughs> let's be honest, there's gonna be a lot of, a lot of dads that try to pick the thing up first. <laughs> yeah, I would be one of those dads. <laughs> I watched the video for, for Project Kiwi and I got this like flash of the future where all sorts of superheroes might be robots and like kind of interesting to think of like a robot that can walk at human speeds through the park and, you know, not have to be carried through the kind of subway tunnels and pop up somewhere, you know, or get carried somewhere in a box. Uh, like I'm assuming baby group probably isn't capable of, of walking from from backstage to, you know, Tomorrowland or something like that. But in the future, it might. And that is really, really cool. 
Um, you know, like I can imagine like uh, an animatronic uh, Iron Man, uh, you know, animatronic maybe. I don't know. What, what else looks kind of robotic? A BB-8. Uh, a BB-8. Well, I think they already have BB-8s. I mean, it's pretty easy to make they like that. They do have a BB-8. Rolling robot, you know. But uh, yeah, I mean, like the, the, the possibilities for this are, are pretty interesting. And it's cool to think that maybe in five or 10 years, you know, when I bring my, my child to, uh, to Disney, they, they might be interacting with a lot of robots instead of, uh, instead of people. It would be pretty cool. It would be pretty cool. I still just bipedal robots with flamethrowers, knives, swords, chainsaws. That has to happen. Not at Disney, though. That's the happiest place on earth. You don't need robot carnage at Disney. <laughs> they need to. They need I to think... bring robot carnage to SeaWorld. <laughs> yeah. Have you guys seen? There is an animatronic dolphin that they're experimenting with doing like dolphin shows with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you can't trap a dolphin in a tank for too long. No, no, well, you shouldn't anyway. Um, but yeah, that would be really cool. I like the idea of replacing those people in those costumes uh with the robots because those costumes have to be the most miserable thing to exist in for any period of time in either the California sun or the Florida sun. You know what I mean? Like the, the giant headed Dis, uh, Mickey's oh, yeah. and Minnie's and all that. Yeah, all you know, those if, people need your... You know, if you get sick inside the suit, you can't take the hat off. You got you to wear, just wear the helmet. Yeah, not okay. And it can't be hard to like program the robot to like sign those, uh, sign the autographs and stuff, you know? Like they yeah, should plus, be able to figure that out. Plus it's a robot. So if it does throw up inside the helmet, it doesn't even, it's not even bothered by it. It doesn't have to take the helmet off. <laughs> no, perfectly fine. It doesn't need to breathe. It's a robot. Well, that's about it for us today. Check out the Norwalk Havoc live stream on YouTube this Saturday, starting at 10 a.m. with the four of us in the broadcast booth. We'll see you then, folks. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.